Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we're visiting a number that gets a lot of attention within the investment community, as well as with senior management, earnings per share. This is another standard that's been around for a while, but it's worth focusing on as the calculation can be complex. In the studio with me today is John Bishop, one of the leaders of our national office financial instruments group. So John, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Heather. Earnings per share is a number that gets a lot of attention from the investor community, analyst community, and something that people really look for when companies are going to release that number. But then I think from sometimes from an accounting perspective, both for preparers and auditors, something that there's a lot of complexity, not always as well understood, and can sometimes be an afterthought in the reporting process. So I think giving some refreshers today will be very helpful for I the audience. So. But before we get into the actual calculations, can you just help set the stage? I know, you know, unlike some of our other big standards, um, we haven't seen a lot of change in this area, which I think preparers probably appreciate. But can you give us a little bit of background on the standard? And Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's been around a while. The original standard was issued over 20 years ago. The standard that predated Topic 260 that became Topic 260 was Statement 128. And yeah, that was issued in, you know, 1996, 1997. So it's been around a while. And there haven't been any changes made uh, to it. But, you know, like other old standards that have been around a while, that doesn't mean they get simple over time. I mean, we have to deal with today's current complex transactions and complex securities and apply the principles that exist in the standard to those current day securities. And that's what attracts the complexity. Yeah, and actually it's interesting you say that because I had John Haran on earlier this month talking about foreign currencies. That's another old standard. Even older standard, right. right. But the point he made, and I think it sounds like the same point here, is that the standard hasn't changed, but the transactions continue to change. And so then the evolution of application of the standard is something people need to keep focusing on. Okay, great. Okay, so then that's very helpful background. So let's just kick off with our first topic basic earnings per share. I know there's two types of earnings per share. So let's start with basic. What goes into that calculation? Yeah, well, before I get into the calculations, keep in mind, this standard, unlike many of the others, is only applicable to companies that have publicly traded common equity securities. So if, if a company does not have publicly traded equity securities, uh, they don't have to apply the standard. EPS is not a statistic that they have to report. So this whole conversation is for public. Can I ask one question, though, before you go on? So if I am a private company and for some reason I wanted to report earnings per share, then do I apply the standard? Or Oh, sure. I mean, if, if for some reason you want to apply like voluntarily or voluntarily report an earnings per share statistic, then you need to comply with uh, Topic 260's guidance. But sure. otherwise, this is one you can ignore if you're private, so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are uh, you right? Um, there are two primary statistics. One, one is basic earnings per share. The objective of basic earnings per share is to simply measure the a company's performance, actual performance over a reporting period, uh, but reduce that to a per share statistic. So essentially, it is you know at a simple level, actual earnings divided by actual shares outstanding. It's not always that simple. Uh, you sometimes have to make certain adjustments to the earnings number. The principal adjustments that sometimes can be tricky are deemed dividends and dividends on non-common stock equity securities, and then 
the application of a two-class kind of methodology when there are non-common stock equity securities that participate in earnings with common stock. Adjustments would have to be made to the numerator of that calculation for situations like that. Sometimes that can be uh, tricky. So not quite so basic. Yeah, basic doesn't mean simple. Yes, okay. Necessarily. Uh, and then the denominator is um, because not all shares will be issued at you know, neatly at the beginning of the period and stay outstanding for the entire reporting period, there's a waiting process for shares that may have been issued within a reporting period or shares that had been redeemed during a reporting period and you wait them for the, the number of days they're outstanding. So the denominator is actually a weighted average calculation. Right. And I guess even for that, it's not just that you had like a major like secondary stock offering. If you're offering shares to your employees and stock options and things like that, those would factor into this? Uh, absolutely. You know, those, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about diluted earnings per share, the other statistic. But yes, those securities that may convert or exercise into common stock during a reporting period will work their way into basic starting at the date they're actually issued in the form of common stock, weighted for the period of, uh, that they're outstanding, of course. Okay, and then going back to the numerator, when you talked about making adjustments to income, talked about deemed dividends and different types of participating securities. Yeah. So can you just give a little more background on that? Or is that literally just look if you have securities that have those types of characteristics? At a certain level, it could be very straightforward. I mean, if, you, if there's a um, the company has preferred stock that's outstanding and that preferred stock requires a a dividend rate, you know, 6%, whatever it is, it's pretty easy to assess where that 6% dividend uh, should be deducted from income in deriving income available to common stockholders to produce basic earnings per share. Not always that straightforward, though. Sometimes preferred stock is uh, modified, and the modification, you know, can be complicated, and you have to determine how to measure that modification and identify whether within the context of that modification there is a deemed dividend that should be included in earnings per share. That also happens with sometimes where warrants or stock options are modified. Uh, one needs to consider whether the modification produces a what is called a deemed dividend that will result in an adjustment. So you can range from simplicity to more nuanced. So then this is definitely not a like set it and forget it calculation. Each quarter when you're preparing this calculation, you need to be thinking about how there have been changes to these different types of securities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so with that then, why don't we move on to diluted EPS, now that you've clarified that basic is not simple. I'm assuming diluted will be even less simple, but can you talk a little bit about that calculation? Yeah, so like I said, basic is a measure of the actual performance of a company over a reporting period. What the objective of the diluted EPS calculation is, is to show a somewhat of a worst-case pro forma scenario, assuming all the securities that existed in the reporting period that have the potential to become common stock actually became common stock. Um, if that were to occur, how low would earnings per share get vis-a-vis -vis the basic calculation? That's the objective of the diluted calculation. There are, I would say, three broad calculation approaches that are used in deriving diluted earnings per share. 
they're not choices that can be made of which approach to select. Uh, the approach is dependent upon the terms of the security that could potentially become common stock that are employed to calculate the, uh, the statistic. So then, can you first, before we get into those different methods, what are some examples, then, of the types of securities? I, you mentioned like stock or stock options that can convert, but what other types of securities would people kind of need to be thinking about? I mean, the basic family of instruments that we have to deal with are your option-type instruments, whether they are warrants to third parties, call options issued to investors, or stock options issued to employees, those are the ones that give the holder the right but not the obligation to pay the company a certain amount of money and receive a certain number of shares. So those are your option type instruments. Then you have your hybrid um, financing instruments, your conversion, convertible instruments, yeah, your convertible preferred stock, your convertible debt, which is you know, a senior equity security or a debt instrument that pays a return uh, but that gives the holder the right at certain points to turn that instrument in in return for shares of common stock. That's a conversion option. Those are the two broad categories of instruments. The third variety are, are arrangements where you know shares may be issued based on the resolution of a contingency. Uh, so it's not an option. It's not a convertible instrument. It's simply just a contract that uh, require shares to be issued based on the resolution of some agreed-upon contingency. So then, John, unlike other, some other areas of GAAP, you're saying even if those shares wouldn't be issued unless some unknown event occurs, I mean, the event is known, but whether it will occur is unknown, you would still consider those in your diluted calculation? Yeah, we can get into the actual mechanics of the, of the approaches. It's not that easy. Of course not. And some of the more challenging... <laughs> fact patterns that we address are dealing with the number of shares to be included and diluted for a contingent share arrangement. Because th what the rule says is that for basic earnings per share, you never include shares under a contingent share arrangement unless and until the contingency is resolved. So that's pretty straightforward. Right. right? So if you're at a reporting period and the contingency is not resolved, don't include it in basic. That's simple. Diluted because, again, it's a, a worst-case scenario. It says, well, evaluate the status of the contingency at the end of the reporting period and then assume that the end of the reporting period is, in fact, the end of the contingency period. So if the contingency is being met or partially being met and you assume that's the end of the contingency period, evaluate how many shares you'd have to issue. Sometimes that's easy. But sometimes it's a little tricky because contingency arrangements may reference cumulative earnings over a number of reporting periods. And so you get into issues, all right, if you're at the end of this reporting period and you have exceeded the target, but you have no idea whether you're going to continue to exceed mm -hmm. the target for the entire measurement period, what do you do? Do you project zero for the rest of the projection period? Do you consider the target just to stay flat with no increases? And, you know, there are various points of view. So there, there can be some challenges in, in that calculation. It definitely sounds like it. So then maybe why don't we, you mentioned the different methods for calculation, and in particular the fact that it's not a choice, 
but they use them in different circumstances. So then can we, can you walk us through those different methods? Yeah, so we kind of talked about contingent share arrangements. Yeah. That's that. The other two broad categories of calculation approaches are what they call the treasury stock method. That method is generally applied to your option type instruments. Those are the instruments, again, that give the holder the right, but not the obligation, to pay the company a certain amount of money to get a certain number of shares. So the way the treasury stock method works is that you assume that all of the holders of those uh, rights actually chose to exercise at the beginning of the period or later if the instrument wasn't issued at the beginning of the period, but let's just say beginning of the period, and the company took the money and repurchased their shares rateably over the reporting period, so as at the average price over the reporting period. And so the net increase between the shares issued upon exercise and the shares repurchased with the exercise proceeds is the increase in the shares that would go into the denominator of the calculation producing dilution. That's how it gets the name treasury stock method because it assumes a treasury stock buyback. Right, and so even though that may not be how you plan it's to... It's completely hypothetical. Okay. It's a complete pro forma calculation to show what you know, assuming the company wanted to minimize dilution, what the worst case dilution would be. So then the, the next broad approach is what we call the if converted method. And by the title of that, you, you kind of can guess that it applies to those other types of instruments that entitle the investor to convert either a debt security or a preferred stock into a certain amount of common stock. And so what that approach does, it says, it, again, it assumes conversion at the beginning of the reporting period or later if the instrument was issued after that period. But unlike an option where you're just paying the company money for shares, here you're just handing in a debt instrument or a preferred stock instrument. So what the model requires one to do is say, well, if that happened, any of the interest charges or the dividend charges that would have been incurred on the instrument would not have been incurred. So you take those uh, interest charges and dividend charges and add them back to the numerator of the calculation. So you have the add back of interest, which would be net of tax, add back of dividends, include the shares issuable in the denominator, and that's how you get your overall diluted calculation. So now you're making adjustments to both sides. Numerator and denominator. Okay. And, you know, the world, like, like we, we talked about before, why, why is the standard so complicated? It's been around for so long. Because the world isn't always that neat and clean in terms of, you know, one instrument's going to fit neatly into one bucket. You know, we, we have, you know, fancy converts that, you know, only some of it's settleable in shares, some of it's settleable in cash. So you kind of have elements of a, a treasury stock calculation approach. Uh, you have some instruments where you wouldn't have to add back the interest because the principal's always paid in cash. So there's a lot of variance around the terms of these instruments where we have to react to the substance of the instrument and apply the appropriate models. Yeah, so that, I actually had two questions for you on that. So whether judgment ever came into this, and it sounds like it does. It does. In some, I mean, some of it is prescriptive, but then if you don't fall neatly into one of these categories, then you have to, I guess, predominant characteristics or what? No, you just have to make some judgments. You know, you, let's say you have a, um, a convertible instrument that requires the principal amount, if the, if the investor converts the instrument to common stock, the terms of the instrument say, well, the investor will get their, their principal back in cash, 
and the value of the conversion option, only that spread will be settled in common stock, well, that introduces two questions. A, you're not getting a fixed number of common stock, mm -hmm. right? So what methodology do you employ to determine the number of common stock shares issuable at the end of a reporting period? And the two sort of camps are, do you use average mm -hmm. share price over the period, which would be somewhat of a treasury stock method kind of methodology? Or do you use share price at the end of the period, which would be more of a contingent share methodology? Um, so that's one issue. Then the other issue is, well, is there a numerator adjustment? Is there an interest add back? Well, in those instruments, we've said no, because you are, in fact, paying the principal. So it's not like you would have avoided the interest charge, right. even if they would have settled. So then, John, that actually goes to a related question I had. I know another very complex area of GAAP can be liabilities versus equity and how you classify an instrument. Does that classification impact this calculation? Yes, it does. Um, that, that's getting very nuanced. But okay. in, at a high level, if you have an instrument that is um, indexed to your own stock, if you don't work through the complex algorithms that exist, you know, the accounting rules, mm -hmm. You know, the result could be that that contract is a derivative that would require fair value remeasurements through income. Well, obviously, if, if you're marketing it to market through income, it's affecting earnings per share. Right, right. Um, if it meets all the tests to be considered an equity contract, then it doesn't get marked to market. And then you may, you may have to apply one of these calculation approaches, treasury stock method or if converted method. Okay, so definitely uh, added complexity. So then, John, why don't we move on then to next topic, which would be related to sequencing. And I know, you know we just talked about these different methods of calculating the diluted earnings per share. And if you have a lot of these types of instruments and you're using different methods, it seems like that could kind of impact the calculations. Can you walk us through that a bit? Yeah, uh, absolutely. But before we get into that, I think we need to talk about the concept of um, dilution and Oh, yeah. Restrictions on anti-dilution, right? So remember now, diluted earnings per share is a worst case scenario. So what the standard doesn't want you to do is to include a, a contingent share arrangement or a convertible or an option that would have the effect of improving basic earnings per share. Right? That would be called anti-dilution. You know, an example of this that would be anti-dilutive is if for a period you have a loss from operations. Well, if you increase the denominator, the loss per share is getting smaller. Mm -hmm. That's better. Better, right? Bigger loss. You want people to right? exercise so, their options. So that's, a, that's an example of, of anti-dilution. And so there's a restriction on including anything that's anti-dilutive. So you're not allowed to include any potential common share instrument that has an anti-dilutive result vis-a-vis -vis basic earnings per share. So with that basic concept in mind, how do you apply that when you have circumstances where you have a number of potential common share instruments, options, convertible debt, convertible preferred? You know, what order do you put them in? Well, what the rule says is you start with the most dilutive and you work your way through the list of instruments that you have and constantly comparing the results. So let's say we have, we have options, we have convertible debt, and we have convertible preferred. The way you determine what is the most dilutive, they, they say it's earnings per convertible share. So that means 
If there's a numerator adjustment, take that numerator adjustment, divide it by the shares issuable, and that will give you an earnings per convertible share. The instrument that produces the smallest earnings per convertible share is the most dilutive. So you start with that. So now options, since they have no numerator impact, by definition, their earnings per convertible share is zero. zero. They always go first. So you include your options. Then you calculate a diluted EPS statistic. Fine. Let's say now your preferred stock and your debt, now they do have numerator adjustments, so you have to determine which one has the smallest earnings per convertible share impact. Let's say it's the debt. Right? So then you include the debt, you recalculate diluted, compare it to the previous calculation that only had options. If there's an improvement, you stop. Okay, so you, you, then you would not include those securities. Not include those, because that would be anti-dilutive. If it continues to lower the number, you include it. Then you go to preferred, because that's the least dilutive of the three, mm-hmm. right? Calculate diluted earnings per share. Compare it to the next previous calculation, which included the option and the debt. Again, if there's an improvement in the number, don't include it. If there's a continued decrease in the number, then you include all three. And that's the ordering, that's the sequencing model. So then, John, just someone's listening and trying to follow. Let me just make sure I got this. So basically what you're saying is for these other types of securities, because I'm making adjustments and perhaps removing interest or something else, the benefit of that removal may be actually more than the, the dilution I'm getting from adding those yes. shares in there. And, you know, you, there are situations where you could see that if you include stock options in the calculation, it'll reduce basic from, you know, a number to a, a lower number. And then you include convertible debt with the add back and recalculate that statistic, diluted will actually go up vis-a-vis what it would have been if you just stopped at the options. You're not supposed to let it go up. And so the worst then, case. Yeah, so we, and so then diluted is never higher than basic earnings per share. It should not be higher. It shouldn't be higher than basic. Okay. And then one other question. Obviously, with stock options and warrants and things like that, you can also have that they're out of the money. So... Would those be included in the calculations? Well, they wouldn't be included because an option that is out of the money, if you just assume it's going to be exercised anyway, the result will be anti-dilutive because, remember now, under the Treasury stock method, Mm. the proceeds that you would collect because it's now out of the money would allow you to buy back more shares Shares than issuing upon exercise, and that will take shares out of the denominator, producing an anti-dilutive effect. So... So then this this part of the calculation is, I guess, another reminder that you can't just do the same thing every quarter. Because if you have these different types of instruments, they could be in or out of the money. Yeah, it's not it a could s- be dilutive or not dilutive. As you said, it's not a set it and forget it yeah. kind of calculation. And you've got new instruments that are being issued and, mm-hmm. and the like. So Okay, that's very helpful. So then, John, I guess another one last area of complexity I wanted to talk about is interim versus annual calculation. I know this can also get into some complexity because of the way you do your quarterly versus the year-to-date calculation. So can you walk yeah, us through that's that a, as that's well? Sort of that, yeah, and that issue is a sort of a close cousin to the anti-dilution principle, right? Um, so what I didn't say in, in discussing dilution was that the control number, i.e. the number that you use to determine whether the diluted calculation would be dilutive to basic or not is income from continuing operations. So if there's positive income from continuing operations 
it doesn't matter if net income is, is actually negative, you would base your dilution analysis on income from continuing operations, so you would include security. So that's your control number. And the way the interim versus year-to-date calculations work is that the diluted calculation is done on a quarterly basis, and the results are then just simply just added from one quarter to the next to get you year-to-date. But it can get a little bit complex when you've got a loss in a quarter, income in a quarter, and year-to-date income, even though you've got some losses in the, in the quarters included in that year-to-date. So let's take you know, an example. Let's say in the first quarter, I've got income from continuing operations. If I have dilutive securities, I will include them using the sequencing that we discussed and whatever method is required, treasury stock or if converted, for that quarter to calculate diluted earnings per share. Let's say in the second quarter, there's a loss from continuing operations. Well, when you have a loss from continuing operations, these assuming conversion or exercise of diluted, potentially dilutive instruments would have an anti-dilutive result on the basic loss per share. So they would not be included in the second quarter. But what if the six-month year to date, there was actually income from continuing operations, right? Then what you would, in fact, do for the six-month year to date is go back to that second quarter, include those dilutive securities for that second quarter, add the, them to the diluted securities in the first quarter to get your year-to-date total dilution. So then your year-to-date calculation is not just math of adding your two quarters together. No, it's a separate calculation. So definitely another thing for people to think yeah, about. Yeah, so that's why there's, there's just complexity in the standard, even though it has been around a while. It's just there's some, some aspects of it are just complicated. Yeah, it's interesting. In preparing for the podcast, I was looking at our chapter in the FSP guide, so chapter 7, 74 pages of guidance on how to calculate EPS. So I think you've done an excellent job summarizing the high-level concepts, but clearly if um, someone's dealing with some of these issues, refer them to those 74 pages to help find yeah, something else. Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your insights. My pleasure, Heather. And to our listeners, I hope you found the discussion with John as interesting as I did. Please look to Chapter 7 of the Financial Statement Presentation Guide for more information. We're off next week for the 4th of July holiday, so from the studio, we wish everyone a happy Independence Day. However, if you're looking for accounting news next week, I would encourage you to listen to our LIBOR podcast, as the LIBOR transition may be a sleeper issue for some companies. Then please tune back in July 9th for another new episode. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.